0: On the cusp of a couple of uh, major exodus events that will happen here at our church over the next couple of months. For those of you who are regulars, you know what I'm talking about. The first exodus event that's happening, really as we speak, is that the snowbirds are heading back up north, and uh, they, they all come up to me and, and many of them and say, "Man, we've just loved being here this winter. We love you, but uh, not enough to stay for the heat." So they're going to be uh, uh, leaving, and then. Uh, The second Exodus event, as many of you know, happens when, after the snowbirds go, those of you who are blessed with a second home are also going to leave us as you head up to Payson and Prescott and Flagstaff and the White Mountains and all of that. And um, I just want to encourage those of you who are actually going to be here all summer that the Bible makes it really clear that at the end, only a remnant will be saved. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that's you and me. And so... uh, it doesn't bode well for the Exodus people, but we're no, I'm I'm joking. It's uh, it, it really is fun. We we always plan some special things in the summer, some special uh, guest speakers when uh, when I'm away for a few weeks. But then also the series that I do, I put a lot of thought into, and as I always try to. But we really uh, try to have a, a meaningful time here uh, in the summer. So don't don't sweat that. No pun intended. That uh, yeah. That, It's going to be a a great day here today. We're uh, going to go to the communion table in just a few minutes, uh, and we're going to do it in kind of a a little bit of a different special way that I think uh, many of us are going to enjoy, especially as our campuses and venues are joining us live for our time in the Word. So let's do this. We're going to bow, and then we're going to dive into God's book, and then we'll go to the communion table in a short while. Father, uh, I thank you for the worship that we've experienced here, as well as at Cactus Mountain, uh, mountain mountain valley and then also lord uh, our venue next door and our chapel campus and god i thank you for uh, the blessings that you've given us and that we lift our voices to you we're sung to we fellowship with each other and uh, lord as we do that god as we do that it prepares us for our time in your word so i pray god that you might uh, bless us now as we look into your book especially into the words of jesus And as we look at this all-important topic of what it might mean to follow you, and even in this area of closeness, God, that you would make us glad that we came here today and worshiped you and studied your word. And I pray this in Christ's name. We all say together, amen. So there was an interesting study done just a few years ago that was written up in a scholarly psychology journal and was reported in Time magazine. And the study was done over a three-year period of time in which they surveyed 732 men and women on the quality of their most intimate relationships. And specifically, they were looking at how close these people felt to their partner and what the results were of this perceived or not perceived closeness. And what they found was both enlightening and, at least for me, even a bit disconcerting. They found that of the 732 people surveyed, that 57% of them, almost two-thirds, reported that they felt more distance than closeness with their partner in life. Uh, Two-thirds felt more distance than closeness. They found further that 37%, just over one-third, were happy with the level of perceived closeness that they had. And then they found that 5% of the people felt too close to their partner uh, in life. And I don't even want to know what that was about. They found even further that the wider the gap that the partners felt, Uh, in the relationship, in other words, the gap between where they wanted the relationship to be and where they perceived it was. The wider the gap that was, the more depressive symptoms the partners reported, and the more poor relationship quality that they also perceived. And that only makes sense, that the gap between where you want to be with your partner as far as closeness is very big, and the bigger it gets, the more depressed you're going to be. So to summarize, the closeness, closeness is not reported by the majority of couples today, almost two-thirds of them in this study, and it hurts the relationship as well as the individual person in their own happiness and life. This is what this study revealed and concluded. But the article didn't stop there. It went on to further conclude, and I I kid you not, if I hadn't read this myself, I wouldn't believe it, but it went on to further conclude that the best remedy for the 57% who don't feel close to their partners was to lower one's expectations on closeness. I'm not kidding. They said, because if you do that, it will lessen the gap between the closeness you want and the closeness that you're not getting. I mean, just to be sure, let me read what one of the authors of this study said. And this is a quote. He said, it's best to not make too many assumptions about what constitutes a healthy relationship. People need to be realistic about how close they are in relationships and how that compares to how they ideally would like it to be. so lower your expectations on closeness in your most key relationships. And they said, you'll just be happier in the end. And let's be honest, folks, this is what some of you have mastered over the years when it comes to your most intimate relationships. And and I feel for you, and I understand. You want to be close with those that you love, but for various reasons that we don't need to go into today, you can't or, or you're not. And so given enough time, you simply adjust your expectations, you learn to live with what you got, and you're making the best of what is not an ideal situation. And so like Jesus, you live as a man or woman acquainted with sorrows. That's how they describe Jesus. And you go through life wanting more closeness with those that you love the most, but but, but you're not getting there. And so you resign yourself to the life that you have. I've been a pastor now for 30 years, and I have seen this variation in so many different forms. It's how many of us finally resign ourselves to some of the relationships we have. We just say, well, I guess this is as good as it gets. And though it's tragic when that happens on a human level, here's the real tragedy, and that is that some, if not many of us, have even dragged that same mindset and resignation into our walk with God. It's true. I see this quite often as a pastor. I mean, think about it. We have this wonderful set of doctrines and beliefs that we adhere to in the Bible. We go to church on a regular basis. We engage in Bible study or small group or service. We give money. We have a consistent devotional life. We even live a life of increased righteousness and morality as followers of Jesus. But but like that marriage partnership that is among those 57% who don't feel close to their partner, even in the midst of all the activities, let's be honest, we don't feel close to God. Even in the midst of all the activities that we're told to do in church, if we're truly honest with ourselves, there comes a certain point where some of us say, it's not working for me. I mean, I'm doing what you're telling me to do and I don't feel closer to him. And so given enough time, we simply resign ourselves to thinking that this must be as good as it gets and we learn to live with the big gap between us and God and we live as a man or woman of sorrows, if you will, when deep down we desire more closeness with the Lord and yet the perceived quality is not quite there. I, I, it happened to me again this week. I was with a, a dear, dear friend of mine who's struggling right now in his life. I mean, he's just been hammered on, on some real difficult issues in his life. And, and the last time I met with him a couple weeks ago, I said to him, you know, I want you to ask God about this one issue, because he's making some decisions I don't agree with that I don't think are right. And I said, just, just ask God. If you don't listen to me, ask God. So when I was with him this week, I said to him, I said, so did you, did you ask God about the issue that you know I, I, that's before us here, this big, huge, life-altering issue that you're, you're facing? And he said, yes, I did. And, and I said, what did God say? And, and, and he told me what he thinks God said. And, and again, he's a dear friend, but I thought to myself, I can promise you, God didn't say that to you. <laughs> Again, I'm not being arrogant here. I'm just saying. I mean, and, and if you knew the issue, you'd agree with me. God did not tell you that, and uh, and but I didn't say anything because I mean he's, he's a friend, and I wasn't gonna you know pummel him in his time of need. And and yet, about a half an hour later in our discussion, it was really a moment in time. We were talking about another issue, and, and again, I'm just ministering to his soul. And he said to me, "You know what, Jamie? I haven't heard from God in years. It's been stillness. It's been silence." there's just nothing and of course I didn't say well I thought you just said a half an hour ago that I didn't say that I I I said thank you thank you I I said I've sensed that thank you for being honest because I said that kind of honesty we can work with see I think a lot of Christians feel like that I think a lot of Christians do the right thing we play the right game we do what we're told to do but deep down When we're going to bed and those thoughts are flooding our head and our heart and it's just us and God, deep down we know that we're not nearly as close as we want to be. In fact, if truth be known, for many of us, we've joined the ranks of the 57% by analogy here, where our relationship with God feels much more distant than it does close. And here's the deal, gang. Then comes along Jesus and he's teaching us what it means to be his follower here in John chapter 7 through 11. And one of the things he's going to show us today, and it's going to blow you away, I promise you this will be encouraging, not guilt-producing, he's going to show us that it doesn't have to be this way at all. That closeness with God is to be a staple of our walk with him this side of heaven, and that it can be found. And though it's going to be hard won and hard fought, Jesus is gonna show us that for those of us who are man or woman enough to fight the good fight of faith, we can attain a level of closeness, not like we're gonna have in heaven, but at least a level of closeness here, this side of heaven, in which we truly can say, yes, I am close with God. We don't need to experience the big gap. We don't need to be a part of that 57%. We can be a part of those who know and experience God. It's an interesting and passion-filled passage before us today. Uh, Jesus is continuing, as he did in John chapter 7, to teach in the temple courts. And now here in John chapter 8, the religious leaders, as you might remember from last week, are continuing to come at him, to take him on. And they eventually have a a one-string banjo. They're basically saying, we don't believe who you are. We don't think you're the Messiah. You're a big fake, and we're out to get you. That's basically what they're saying. And and, and there's a tension-filled dialogue now that Jesus is about to have with them in John 8, verses 12 through 30. And in this dialogue, he's going to reveal to them, and by extension you and I, that he indeed is close with the Father. I mean like closer than anybody could ever be, but that that closeness can benefit you and I because he's going to show us that we can be as well. So let me walk you through our passage before us today, John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. And for time's sake, I'm not going to read the whole passage because we don't have time today. I'd like as your homework, if you would, to read it sometime this week on your own. I'm going to walk you through the highlights of this passage, showing you the three main movements of this passage and, and highlighting where Jesus shows us his closeness with the Father. But then as I, after I do that, uh, sometime this week, read it in one setting so that you get uh, the gist of all of this as well. Now, notice with me that it all begins in verse 12 when Jesus says this. It says, then Jesus again said to them, the religious leaders, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now guys, here's what you need to see. This is a setup statement, if there ever was one. This is kind of a preamble, maybe the main thesis of what Jesus is trying to say here that's going to set the tone uh, all the way up now through verse 30. And what is he saying here? He's saying that in him is light, that his light lights the world, that those who follow him will no longer have to have darkness, but will have his light shining in their lives. Now think about it. What is the light of Jesus and where or what does it shine upon? Well, if you know anything about the Bible, the light of Jesus is the light of God, because Jesus was God come in the flesh, and it's a light that shines on God himself. It's a light that shines our way so that we can know God, so we can follow God, so we can find our sufficiency and satisfaction in God. And so for our purposes this morning here, Jesus's light shines on God the Father, shines on the Godhead so that we can find him and be close to him. That's what Jesus is starting to set up here. And it's right at this point that the first movement of this section, again, I told you there's three, occurs when the Pharisees push back. And they essentially say in verse 13, well, you're giving this testimony about yourself, so your testimony is obviously not true. You see, the Old Testament said that in order for something to be true, it needed to be testified by two or three witnesses, And Jesus is testifying about himself here. So they're saying legally what you're saying is not true. And in defending himself against this pushback, Jesus is going to give them now the first one and two, the first of two of six statements that reveal his closeness to the Father. We're going to look very quickly at all six of these statements. So here's the first one in verse 14. It says, Jesus answered, again, there are things saying that, you know, you're testifying about yourself. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. That's the first thing Jesus says here. And don't miss this, gang. It's all about closeness. Jesus came from the Father from all of eternity as the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And in a few short years, he's saying, I'm going to be returning to the Father to be reunited with him. And his testimony is true because he came from the Father, because he's going back to the Father, because he is that close to the Father. That's what Jesus is laying out here. And it's not going to be lost at all on the Pharisees. Then look at verse 16 as he continues his answer to them saying that you can't testify about yourself. He gives us the second statement of closeness here when he says, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true for I am not alone in it, but I am the father who sent me. Now again, gang, this is really rich because Jesus is saying that the father sent him to this earth, but he is not alone. He's saying the Father is still always with me. His presence is still always with me. I am that close to the Father. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, actually, I'm not just having one guy testify about what I'm saying. It's me and the Father that testifies it because I am never alone when it comes to my relationship with him. So simply notice for our purposes this morning, two statements outlining closeness that Jesus has here with the Father. But as you can imagine, that's not enough for the Pharisees. They continue to push back, and this leads to the second movement of this account here where Jesus is now going to go for the jugular. He's been playing wiffle ball up to this point with them, and now he's going to pull out the hard ball, and essentially he's going to tell them that the reason that they can't believe That the reason that they cannot see who he is is because they are stuck in their sin and even their unbelief. You're saying, really, he says that? Yeah, look at verse 21. Jesus says, I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Because where I'm going, you will not come. (laughs) Wow. I mean, hard-hitting words from Jesus here. And in response to the confusion that the religious leaders have about this statement, because you're basically telling your pastor that he's a big sinner and that he's going to die in his sin, that's what Jesus was doing here, Uh, Jesus further follows up with the now third statement about closeness. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So he's offering them salvation. He's offering them life. But don't miss that in so doing, and this is really important, he says, I am from above. I am not of this world. So again, it's another statement of closeness. The richness behind these words, gang, is really amazing. He's saying, I have lived for all of eternity, With God the Father in perpetual closeness with him. A closeness that stems from my eternal dwelling with God the Father as God the Son. That's what Jesus is laying out here. And then the Pharisees by this point are totally flummoxed by Jesus' claims here and they finally just cut to the quick, ask the $10 question that they should have asked right up front and you gotta love this question. They look at him and say, who are you? (laughs) Right? Like at this point, they're going, stop speaking to us in riddles. Who in the world are you? And Jesus has them right where he wants them. And he goes on in verses 26 to 29, the third movement of this story, to give three more powerful statements about his closeness with the Father. Rapid fire right now. Look at verse 26. He says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world. And then look at verse 28. He says, it says, so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And then verse 29 He says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Let me ask you guys, do do you get a sense of closeness here between Jesus and the Father? I, I mean, again, this is Trinitarian stuff. People are very confused by the Trinity. It is a mystery, and that's why these words are almost confusing. Jesus is walking a very thin line here between trying to help us understand that there is one God, in three persons. And he's trying to describe the closeness that he has here with the Father, as God the Son relates to God the Father as one God for all of eternity. That's what Jesus is trying to describe here to us. And he's essentially saying that everything I hear the Father say, I say. I only speak what the Father wants me to speak, and I'm not alone, because the Father sent me, and everything he does, I see him doing, I do as well. I, I mean, it's almost like Siamese twins <laughs> connected with one brain into two different entities. This is what Jesus' relationship was like with the Father. So add it all up, gang, this is real important that you see this, six statements, all revealing that Jesus as God the Son walked in perpetual closeness with God the Father. He knew where he came from and where he was going. He was not alone, the Father was with him. And this was such a real closeness that he said, I am not of this world, I'm from above. I speak what the Father wants me to speak, and I do what the Father wants me to do. And the point is this, and it's our main point here today, and now you're ready for it. And that is that what we learn from this is that Jesus lived a life of perpetual closeness to the Father. That's what he's laying out here. Now watch this, and so can we. Some of you are thinking right now, well, Jamie, I get the first part there. I mean, he did live a life of perpetual closeness to the Father. Everybody seems to believe that, but where's the, where's the so can we part? I, I must have missed that. Yeah, you might have. You know why? Because that's why we have to go back to verse 12. Do you remember the setup verse for this entire section of Scripture? It's really important. Jesus began this entire section by saying that his followers walk in his light. Give me a head now that you all remember that, right? I spent a few seconds on that. And then, after Jesus says that his followers walk in his light, do you think it's any coincidence that he then spends the next 18 or so verses talking about how he has this closeness with God the Father, that he walks in perpetual closeness with the Father? And so the only conclusion that we can draw is that maybe that has some tie to this light that he wants to shine on our lives. That as Jesus shines the light that lights the way for those of us who are followers of him. Maybe, just maybe, that light is light of closeness with God the Father. And maybe that light is the kind of light in which you and I go, we salivate after the closeness Jesus had, and we ask Jesus, do we get any of that closeness? And again, that's the argument some people try to make. They try to say, well, you know, Jamie, I mean, Jesus was God the Son, you already said that, and so, of course, he had a close relationship with God the Father but I'm not God the Son, and so how can I expect to have any kind of that closeness? Well, here's how you can expect to have it. Jesus said he wants you to have it. He said that he wants his light and his kind of walk with God the Father to be your kind of light and your kind of walk with God the Father. He said all that I am, I want to give to you, and it doesn't mean that we become God the Son. That would be bad theology. But it does mean, as our worship leader here at Shea said earlier, Troy, that as we grow as followers of him, we become more like him. And we start to experience the things that Jesus experienced. And closeness is core to what Jesus had with the Father, and he wants us to have it as well. I think this is Jesus' point here, that he is close to the Father, And that as we follow him, his light shines and that we get to experience closeness as well. And so a key part of being a faithful follower of Jesus, now watch this, is both attained and even defined by closeness. You attain it by experiencing his closeness and that closeness defines what it means to be his follower. So as I almost always ask in a very practical way at this point in our message, how are we precisely to get there? I mean, it's one thing to have a right and cogent theology that recognizes and owns that Jesus lived in perpetual closeness with the Father because that's inarguable, but, but how do we then attain that ourselves? How, what is it gonna take? And I wanna wrap up this morning by sharing with you five activities Five activities that you and I can be about in our daily lives that can breed closeness with the Lord. But I want to warn you right now, these are going to be very different for some of you. These are five activities that that I'm telling you right now are not going to be about going to church or joining a Bible study or tithing 10% on the gross or serving in a soup kitchen or even having your nice little daily devotions. It's not going to involve any of that. As good as all those things are, I already know what some of you are experiencing. You're doing all of those things already and you're not any closer to God. And so I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. Those are good things to do. And I think those spiritual disciplines are right and they do breed a faithful life before the Lord. But interestingly, you can do all those things and still feel very distant from God. And do you want to know why? Because to have closeness with God, something has to happen in here. And no amount of outward behavioral activities like tithing 10% or sitting in a pew or going to a Bible study or serving in a soup kitchen, those are all good things. Those are all outward activities. No amount of that can necessarily change this. And so if we're ever going to get close with God, we need to do activities that are about what the great spiritual writers called the interior world that space that is reserved only for you and God, that space that you carry around 24-7 with you, everywhere that you go, that very, very few people even ever get a glimpse of because it's that private space where things are happening all the time between you and God and you and the most important relationships that you have. And it's your interior life. And I'm gonna give you five activities now that the Bible gives us they can radically change your interior world if you dare to do these things with God and breed closeness with him over time. It's gonna be hard one. It's gonna be hard fought. You gotta to commit to these things. But I can tell you, after 35 years, they work. So this is what it takes. Here's the first thing you need to do. You need to talk. <laughs> In other words, you need to take your interior life with God and you need to start Talking to him a lot more than what you do. The Bible calls it prayer. In one of the most powerful verses on prayer, but the most, one of the most misunderstood verses on prayer is 1 Thessalonians 5:17. It says this: pray without ceasing. Say that with me, would you right now? Pray without ceasing. Say it again: pray without ceasing. <laughs> I almost want to come out of my skin. Every time I've ever heard a sermon on this passage, I hear the poor pastor say it this way. Well, you know, you can't really pray all the time. And so what this passage really means is, and I want to scream. Because there's a lot of things I don't know. But I know the Bible. And let me tell you, let's be really clear about this right now. What this passage really means is what it says. To put it in the vernacular, Pray. All the stinking time. That's what this passage means. It means that every chance you get, every moment that you come into any semblance of consciousness of God, and you need to ask him for more of that, talk to him. It means that your prayer life is not relegated to church on Sunday morning or a little prayer before a meal or a nice little prayer before bed. No, that's all child's play. Your prayer life is 24-7 constantly going on between you and God. there's open airways, there's open dialogue, and it's constantly happening. And for those that can learn to have that kind of prayer life, that kind of talk with God, over time, there's some closeness that develops there. See, gang, I I don't know what your spiritual life is like, but this is how I live. I'm not trying to make myself out to be a spiritual giant, I just love God. (laughs) And I want to know Him, and I want to be closer to Him than I am. So I'm talking to Him all the time throughout the day. How about you? I am. I, 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 I'm driving down the road, and I'm playing some of my favorite country music, right, because that's the best kind of music, and I'm playing some of my favorite country music. In the middle of a country song, I'm talking to the Lord. I'm walking to my next appointment. I'm talking to the Lord. Watch this. There's times I'm even talking to you, and I'm talking to the Lord. You say, how are you doing that? It's my interior world. You don't see it. But, but I'm talking to you and some of you are, are quite frankly kind of crazy and you put things before me. And, and I go, God, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, if you could hear it, I go, God, I have no idea what to do with this person. I have no idea what to do with this. Or, or how about in my own life? Sometimes things happen to me. And I go, I, God, I don't know what to do with that. You don't hear me say that. I'm talking to the Lord. Give me a head now that y'all know what I'm talking about. We have a relationship with God in which we pray without ceasing. And some of us, Need to talk a lot more to God than we have been up to this point in life. Years ago, somebody helped me with this when they said, Jamie, make a distinction in your life. I love this, between King James prayers and what this person called trench warfare prayers. Do you know the difference? King James prayer, not a bad prayer. It's a prayer that you pray, you know, before you eat. Bless us, O Lord, these are gifts we're about to receive through Christ our Lord. Amen. King James prayers are. Prayer we pray at weddings, you know. I mean, God be with that person and bless this couple, and you know, it's a King James prayer, and they're, they're good prayers. They're good to have. But 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 trench warfare prayers are the prayer in which you hit your knees when your kid has taken stupid pills. You ever prayed a prayer like that? <laughs> it, it's a prayer that you pray when you and your wife are at a really bad place. It's a prayer you pray where you don't know when your next provision is coming from. It's a prayer you pray when you get really bad news at Mayo. It's even a prayer you pray when you're in the heights of joy. Say you are maybe out hiking in the McDowells, and God just overwhelms you with the beauty of his creation. What do you do with that? You have a trench warfare prayer. You say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you for this creation. See, I think most of us, many of us need to start making a distinction between our, our more formal stayed prayer life, which is good to have. Don't get me wrong, that's not bad. And just those everyday trench warfare prayers that God wants us to have. And then as you're talking to God, I encourage you to engage in a second activity that he wants us to be about. And it's a form of talk. These kind of build one upon the other. And it's what the Bible calls confession. What do I mean by this? Look at what 1 John 1, 9 says. It says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, now to understand this passage, and I know some of you don't like it when I talk like this, but I've already talked in ways you don't like today, so let's just keep that going. Um, I, this passage assumes one huge thing, and that is that you and I sin a lot. Can you own that at all? See, See, as long as you see sin... Only as certain outward behaviors, you you won't think you sin a lot. Because as a Christian, you've probably mastered some of those behaviors already. I know I have. I don't usually struggle with the Ten Commandments. How about you? I, I don't. I got most of those down. Not all of them, because there's a few early nebulous ones that are hard to live completely consistently, but but adultery, stealing, lying, murder, even coveting and things like that. I, I've worked pretty hard on those after 35 years, and I'm I'm not bragging, I'm just saying that your pastor doesn't really fall too much in those areas. But, but as I've grown in Christ, I don't know if you've experienced this, uh, every time I seem to master a certain sin or, or repentance of sin... <laughs> God seems to bring to light some other things I need to work on. Have you ever found that? So as soon as I start to feel good, as soon as I climb the hill and get to the plateau, the Lord taps me on the shoulder and says, "You got another hill to climb right here." And usually that other hill to climb, now watch this, is a lot more subtle than the previous hill. I was flying recently. I've been flying a lot lately because we're doing some interviewing of some key staff positions we're hiring for, and. Uh, I I, I notice that when I fly, and and again, this is such a, this is very intimate for me, guys, because I'm going to let you into part of my interior life that I'm really embarrassed by, because I I just, I hate the fact that I'm this way. Noni is here. Noni will get this. I mean, it's just, I'm just weird. I I notice that when I fly, I display a very different behavior in the airport than I do at home or at church. And you're saying, what do you mean? I I, I notice that when I fly, I, I, I feel... I don't like the crowds, I don't like the fact that I'm not with people I know, and and I feel more defensive, and I just want to get it over with, and so I'm standing there in line saying, I want to get on the plane first, and then I'm I'm on the plane first, I want that overhead bin, and I want the aisle seat, and I'm I'm like totally, and I I would never do any of that stuff at church. Some of you guys do. I would not. I would never do that at church. I'm just, and, and I've noticed that when I fly, I'm just, I'm just not myself, and I'm, I'm this, just this defensive, I want to get it over with. And some of you think, well, okay, that's a, it is a big deal for me, because I'm relational, and God wants me to love people, minister to people everywhere I'm at, and I'm just not at all myself, or even scary, maybe I am part of myself, my sinful self, when I'm flying. And, 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 so I, and I've tried to just say, well, don't be like that. Some of you do that too. It's flush management, right? You know, it's sin management. I just won't be like that. You know, it's like Dorothy trying to get back, you know, from Oz. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And, 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 and it's, you know, been going on for a few years. And I'm, and I'm still, it's just something deep in my psyche. I don't even know what it is. I'm 53, so most 53-year-olds don't change that much. And, I'm, and it's just something deep in my psyche. And, and, and so, you know, what I've been doing lately, and this has been really helping a lot. I've been confessing it to God. I get to the airport and I can sense the defensiveness coming on in me and I just start to have a dialogue with God and I say, God, right now my heart is getting hard and I feel defensive and, I, and, I, and I'm gonna tend to see people as, as projects to get beyond, not as organic entities created in your image and so, God, I'm so sorry about that and I confess that as sin and I thank you, I thank you, I thank you for your forgiveness of me. And it's fascinating, when I engage in that kind of talk with God, when I confess at that level, a sin that subtle, I, I, I find that at the very least, I feel close to Him. And in feeling close to Him, it's not magic, but in feeling close to Him, my heart starts to settle down a little bit. <laughs> and, and, and and there's been some flights where I'm much more, maybe what's the word, centered at peace, close to the Lord. And I'm less concerned about the overhead bin and getting on there first and you know getting my drink and things like that non-alcoholic drink, and things like that. I'm, I'm a lot less concerned about that, and, and I'm much more concerned about the things of God. You see, God wants us to live a life of confession before him. So we talk to God, we confess regularly to him, and, and then running out of time fast, the third activity that God wants us to do, and this one's very profound, is to learn to listen to him now. Now, what do we mean by that? Let me ask you: When was the last time you got absolutely alone and quiet before God and just listened to Him? Don't raise your hand. But when was the last time you did that? And somebody saying, well, "What would I listen for?" Well, the Bible says that God speaks to us in a still small voice, and, and that that voice is only going to be heard when we're out of the hustle and bustle and craziness of our lives. So when was the last time that you got absolutely alone and listened to God? Thomas Merton from the last century once said it this way. He said, as soon as you are really alone, you are with God. I love that quote. Some of us absolutely hate to be alone. We see uh, being alone as loneliness. But the reality is, is that some of the great spiritual writers have seen being alone as that opportunity you have to be with God and to listen to him. James 1 verse 19 says it this way. It says, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And you know what's amazing about this verse is when you marry this verse to the first activity we learned about earlier, talking to God, this becomes really potent because we learned that we're to pray without ceasing to talk to God a lot, but now it's saying be slow to do that and much quicker to do that. Wow. So God wants us to talk to him all the time and then listen to him even more which tells us that maybe this is a trait that will breed closeness with God. And again, it's for another sermon how we actually listen to God. God uses his word, he uses others, he uses circumstances, he uses the inner promptings of his Holy Spirit who inhabit us. I mean, these are all ways that God will speak to us. But here's the beauty of this. Now, don't miss this, I know we're running out of time. But here's the beauty of this, that if you attempt to listen to God, if you posture yourself in aloneness before him, and just say, okay, Lord, I'm listening, even if you don't hear anything, because you have slowed down, because you've gotten quiet, because you're now in listening mode, the very act of that will bring closeness with God. Is that not cool? And I'm telling you, it really works that way. Kim and I have been taking walks in the morning. We're trying to develop a different kind of life for us that kind of sustains us in the long haul. So we've been getting up very early and walking, uh, just the two of us, Around our neighborhood, about three or four miles. And, and we started doing it a few months ago. And, you know, the very first few months, it was like jabber, 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 jabber. You know, we're trying to catch up on lost time. And, and, and the last few times, however, and some of you can really relate to this, we've been walking, and there'll be like 30, 40, 50 minutes where nothing is at all said to each other. And, and so it was like that yesterday. We took a really long walk, and honestly, it was like, I mean, we just didn't say anything for like 40, 45 minutes. And yet, let me ask you a question. Even though we didn't say anything, even though we didn't hear anything, do you think I still felt close to her, yes or no? Absolutely. I, I, I did. I, I really did. Not, not, that wouldn't always work that way, but it, it does more often than not. And I wonder sometimes if it's not the same with God, that when we just get alone with him and quiet before him, even if we're not hearing anything, if maybe we won't sense that closeness, like I do with Kim. I, I've experienced that with God. And, and so we talk, we confess, we listen. And, and then here's the third or fourth and fifth thing we do we trust. We trust. Now look at how the scriptures would put this to us in Proverbs chapter three, or Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Just really quickly, what I want you to see about this passage here and this whole idea of trust. Because many of you say, well, trust, that sounds more nebulous and talk and confess and listen. It's really not. Here's the reality this verse is assuming that you're gonna trust things other than God, <laughs> right? And think about it you go throughout your day and you trust so many things in the world around you, not bad things, it's just that you put your trust in yourself. And your own abilities, you put your trust in this world, others, society, friends, co-workers, the government, your 401K, should I go on and on? There's lots of things that you and I trust. And they're not bad things, it's just that along comes God and he says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't give all of your heart to any of those things. That would be goofy. Give all your heart to God. And lean not on your own understanding. So again, it only goes out saying that, that, that part of drawing close to him is to ask yourself at any key moment during the day what am I trusting right now who am I trusting right now and again it's an interior world thing am I trusting God and then lastly we submit we submit submission is kind of like trust but it takes trust even further Uh, submission is what we all saw in our story with Brian Uh, Brian was a guy who I could tell, I met him last night, I think he's been a Christian for a while, a long time, and, and, and had come to believe in, in Jesus and all of that, but it wasn't until he went through that horrendous experience with Alps at, that he started to live a life of absolute submission before God. And you heard him even say, don't wait till you get on your deathbed to make that decision, do it now. Because you see, submission, calling him Lord and giving him the full right of way in your life Breeds closeness. Last verse, James 4, verses 7 through 8, says, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw close to God and he will draw close or near to you. So as we submit to him, the end result is that he draws near to us. Submission breeds closeness. Look one last time at this list because we're going to go to the communion table very fast here. These are the things, gang, that God wants to use for you to have a close relationship with him. And again, here's the beauty of these five things. They seem so simple to some of you because they're all relational traits. But I'm telling you, these are the things that transcend all the other activities that you're told to do. These transcend church attendance, Bible studies, small group. They even transcend your devotional life. It transcends giving and serving. Those are all the good things to do. Don't ever hear me say not to do those. But these are the things that you're either going to incorporate into into your world, all of your world, or you're not. And these are the things that breed closeness with the Lord. Well, this is a great day to put all this into practice. Um, As we're talking about closeness, Troy and his team... Uh, wanted to do something just subtly different with the way we do communion today. What we usually do with communion and Lord's Supper is we dismiss our Cactus Campus and our venue and our chapel and Mountain Valley, and we send them off to do their own thing. And uh, today, what we decided to do to celebrate closeness is all engage in the Lord's Supper together. So even though you can't see them, they can see us here. We're going to all partake in communion together, all five campuses and venues, And the way we're going to do this is that we're going to call the servers forward right now here and at Mountain Valley Cactus Venue and Chapel. And as the servers are all coming forward together in unison, in just a minute I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to hand out the elements to uh, all of us together, all of us together. And we're all going to watch the same series of slides that just bring some scripture to mind for us. And here's what I'd like us all to do in keeping with this theme of closeness as you handle the bread and the juice, the symbols of the body and blood of Jesus, which have secured your forgiveness in Christ. I'd like you to think about your relationship with him and maybe begin to practice one or two of these traits that breed closeness. Maybe this is your time to talk to God. Maybe this is your time to confess some sins. Maybe this is your time to read those scriptures and simply listen. Maybe this is a time to repent of your trust in yourself and place your trust in him. Maybe this is a time where you submit to him. Use these four or five minutes as they are intended, and that is to be a unifying time for the body of Christ, all of us together, but individually with the Lord. You will draw close to him, and he will draw close to you. Let's pray, Father. I thank you for these elements that are highly, highly, highly powerful as symbols of Jesus' body and his blood. And I pray, God, that as we hold these elements, as we then will all partake of them together after our worship, that, God, you would bring home to us at the very least the core of our salvation, the body and blood of Jesus, which has been sufficient to bring us to you. And that, Lord, maybe even more as we spend time as followers of you now in holy communion with you, that you might draw close to us as we draw close to you. Hear that prayer, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I've shared before that one of my most favorite times in church is exactly what we're doing right now. There's a lot of things we do in church, but when we have these regular times of celebrating the Lord's Supper and communion, at least for me, this is the most special. And part of the reason is, is because in the midst of the complexity of my life, I need to be brought back to the very profound but simple realities of what my faith is about, what my walk with Jesus is about, and that's what these elements do. They remind me that in the midst of all the stuff going on, what matters most is the blood of Jesus Christ. That, that is, it says in there in Ephesians 2:13, you who were once far away, and that means all of us, have now been brought near through the blood of Christ. Because now God forgives our sin. And our sin in his eyes is no more. So that we can now walk in the fullness of life with him. But it all goes back to what he did for us in Jesus. So let's celebrate that now. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread that they were eating and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's given for you. So we eat in remembrance of him. In the same way, Jesus took the cup that they were drinking. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness, the remission of your sin. And so when we drink, we remember him. Our gracious, merciful, heavenly father, in this moment, we remember your son, Jesus, and we place our faith and our trust fully upon him. And I pray, Lord, that as we now go from this place and here at our campuses and venues, that, God, we would go in full assurance of faith. And, Lord, go in the same spirit of trust and faith in you. God, we desire closeness with you. May that be a reality for our lives as we talk to you, confess to you, as we place our trust in you, as we submit to you, as we listen to you, God. We will do those things pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. We all say together, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.